0: Our subject this morning is the Holy Spirit and the sinning Christian. There are three prerequisites which must be met before a Christian can produce the fruit of the Spirit. The Christian life is regulated by certain conditions which must be met if we are to live the Christian life. And I suppose that the reason for all the tragic failure today, all the frightful casualties today, and the total wrecks that line the shore of life today is because we have not met the demands of Christ. There are three conditions in relationship to the Holy Spirit. Two of them are negative, one is positive, and the one we're looking at today is found in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, the thirtieth verse, and it again is a launching pad for us to take off, not into space, but into the streets and into our everyday humdrum life and grieve not the spirit whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. There are several basic truths that we learn from this verse that we ought to establish at the very beginning. First of all, the Holy Spirit is a person. You cannot grieve an influence. You can't grieve something that is a sort of a ghost. You can only grieve a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. He can be grieved. Second, you cannot grieve him away. We are told here you are sealed by the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. The third, the Holy Spirit is holy. It's possible to grieve him. You can't live just any kind of a slipshod life as a believer. If you do, you'll grieve the Holy Spirit. Now this morning, I want us to look at several questions, and each one of them begins with what. And the first one is, what grieves the Holy Spirit? What was it that caused him to be grieved? Paul was very clear that the Old Testament had been given for our comfort and our admonition and our instruction. So this morning, I go back and see what it was that grieved God. And I want to turn to Psalm 78 and verse 40. And you will find there in this psalm that the psalmist is recounting the experiences of the children of Israel in the wilderness. Here's what is said here, beginning verse 40. How oft did they provoke him in the wilderness and grieve him in the desert? Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Now, to grieve the Holy Spirit means that we actually limit God in our lives and in that area where we are moving today. The children of Israel actually limited God because they grieved. Then Psalm 95, verse 10. Forty years long was I grieved with this generation and said, It's a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. What was it that grieved God? It was the era of the children of Israel. It was their sin that grieved God. I want to confirm that. I find Isaiah had something to say about this same experience in the 63rd chapter, verse 10. But they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit, therefore he was turned to be their enemy and he fought against them. And Isaiah specifically says that the children of Israel in the wilderness vexed. They grieved the Holy Spirit of God. Now, I move into the New Testament, and we nail it down. In Hebrews, the third chapter, we find that the writer there is saying, verse 10, Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their hearts and they've not known my ways. He's quoting, of course, from Psalm 95. Now, in verse 17 of Hebrews 3, goes on and says, But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? What is it that grieves the Holy Spirit of God? My beloved, it is sin. Sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Now we come to the next what. What sins? What sins grieve the Holy Spirit? Now I know that it's very easy to say and rather naive to say, all sin grieves him. And certainly that is true. But we want this morning to deal with specifics. We want to make a diagnosis because we are talking to believers for the most part, and believers sometimes grieve the Holy Spirit. First of all, I think we need to clear this up because a great many people attempt to evade and avoid this problem by saying they have gotten rid of the sin nature and that the Holy Spirit couldn't dwell in where a person has a sin nature. May I say to you, Paul makes it very clear that the Holy Spirit is able to dwell in a believer who has a sin nature. If he didn't, he wouldn't indwell any of us, but there's a basis for it. Over in the sixth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans, verse 10, and I've given you two different translations. Now this morning, I'm going to give you the best translation there is. It's the Megiacus ad absurdum translation. Now will you listen very carefully. For as to his dying, it was as to sin he died once for all. But as to his living, it is as to God he lived. Now, Paul is not saying here that Christ died for sin. He said that elsewhere. He's talking about something else. He's discussing here in this section that Christ died under sin. He died a judgment death for our sin nature, and if he had not, the Holy Spirit couldn't get in 40 feet of any of us. But you see, He died for our sin nature. He died not only for sin, but under sin. For that's exactly what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Christ became what we are on the cross, that we today might be what he is. Christ on the cross became what we are, sinners. He was made sin for us who knew no sin. Now, my beloved, God has no notion of reforming the old nature. He put it to death on the cross. Nineteen hundred years ago when Christ died, He died unto sin and your old nature was judged there. God's not going to save it. Has no notion of saving it. It's judged. And when you die, it'll go into the grave with you and it will never come out. May I say to you, Paul has already said in verse 8, we believe that we shall also be living with Him. And Paul says, because of 1,900 years ago, he died under sin, to that sin nature, we are not to live into that sin nature, but we are now to live under Christ. Which leads me to say this, God has made provision for the prevention of sin in the life of the believer and to live triumphantly. But I must say, with Dr. Schofield, who years ago said, it is true, God has made ample provision, but he says, I never met anybody that was living without sin. And may I say that since then I haven't met anybody, I'm sure that you have not. God's provision is perfect, but our entrance is imperfect. Listen. My little children, my little burns, burns if you want to call it. My little born ones, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. Made the provision, our entrance into it is imperfect. And because of that, believers sin. Now there's a cure for the sins of believers, and I think that we this morning are interested in that. I believe every sincere child of God's interested in that. But before we do it, look at the cure. Let's continue our diagnosis. I wanted to be very sure that none of us got the impression that you're going to get rid of your sin nature. He died unto it. you and I to reckon. That's the way we're to live. Conscious of the fact that we have that sin nature, but we are not to live in that sin nature. We're to live under Christ. Now there's a cure for sins of believers. But let's look at the diagnosis. Let's identify some of the sins of believers. What grieves the Holy Spirit? Oh, I know. Somebody's gonna say, go into picture show. Somebody's going to say dancing. Somebody's going to say smoking. Really, I've looked. I haven't found those verses. I say that for this reason. We have some folk today who say we don't do these things, therefore we are separated spiritual Christians. Let's see if you are. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. The Spirit of Truth. The Lord Jesus said, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he'll lead you into all truth. He's called the Spirit of truth. And if he is, then one of the sins that would grieve him would be lying, would it not? And the very interesting thing is that so many lift Ephesians 4:30 out and do not pay attention to its context. May I say you will find there quite a list of sins that grieve the Holy Spirit. And back in the 25th verse of this chapter, listen to this, Wherefore putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. We expected that, didn't we? That if he's the Spirit of truth, lying then would grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And here we are told that lying is one of the things that does grieve the Holy Spirit of God. One-half truths, falsehoods, little white lies, we call them, false impressions, gossip grieves the Holy Spirit of God. And where gossip is engaged in, the Holy Spirit of God cannot work in fullness of power. He's the spirit of truth. And any misrepresentation Any wagging tongue that says that, that it cannot prove, grieves the Holy Spirit of God. He is called the Spirit of Wisdom. Back in the 11th chapter of Isaiah, we are definitely given that mark, that label, the Spirit of Wisdom. Neglect on the part of a believer of the Word of God grieves the Holy Spirit. Ignorance today of spiritual truths on the part of believers grieves the Holy Spirit. And I personally believe today that that is grieving the Holy Spirit more than anything else in our churches. The fact that men and women have been believers 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and they're still ignorant of the Word of God, know practically nothing about it. He's the Spirit of Wisdom and ignorance will grieve him. He's called the spirit of life and power. You remember that Paul said in Romans 8, 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. He's called the spirit of life. He's also called the spirit of power. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind power, life and power. My friend today, the thing that grieves the Holy Spirit probably more than anything else is a lukewarm Christian. He's the spirit of life, and he's the spirit of power. And when he's not moving in our hearts and lives, giving life and power, then my beloved, he's grieved. He's called the spirit of holiness. Paul says in Romans 1, 4, he's declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. Therefore, all impurity offends him. Now, will you listen? I'm going to the verses immediately above our launching pad today, Ephesians 4, 30, and the one below it. I don't know why folk don't draw those out. Here's what offends the Holy Spirit. Here's what grieves him. Listen to this. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Corrupt communication. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. When you said that ugly thing about a certain person, were you really motivated by malice? Or really was it a helpful suggestion that you were making? Were you helping the cause of Christ when you began to speak evil someone? May I say to you, God's word says you grieve the Holy Spirit of God if you're a child of God and he's indwelling you. Ephesians 5. Verse 3, but fornication and all uncleanness are covetousness. Let it not be even named among you. Are you money hungry today and you're a child of God? We're living in a world today that has overworked sex. Has that taken you down the drain today as a child of God? He's the spirit of holiness. And my friend, We grieve the Holy Spirit by these sins, and that's one of the reasons that we're not seeing a great manifestation of the Spirit of God today is because many believers have grieved the Spirit of God, and he cannot work in our midst. That's holding back revival today. Believers are holding back revival. I come to my next what. What happens when a Christian sins? Something happens when a Christian sins. He doesn't lose his salvation. Sealed unto the day of redemption. Until that day we're presented to him, we've been sealed. And this translation actually brings out what Paul is saying, the original. The Holy Spirit is himself the seal. He's there and he'll present you to Christ. But my friend, you can grieve him. We do not lose our salvation, but we do lose our fellowship. The Lord Jesus in the upper room. You remember that we're told two things, that Satan had come into the upper room and that he had entered into the heart of Judas' And He was there. Fellowship was broken in the upper room. Our Lord arose, began to wash the disciples' feet. Peter says, don't wash my feet. And there was a man susceptible to Satan, we know from the past, because our Lord had said to him, get thee behind me, Satan. Our Lord said to Simon Peter, if I wash thee not, thou dost not have any part, any fellowship with me. You have to be clean if you're going to fellowship with me. Oh, the believers today that think that they can have fellowship with Christ, with sin in their lives, it's impossible. It's impossible. And when there is sin in the life of a believer, he loses his fellowship. There's no power and there's no fruit of the Spirit in the life. They're miserable and they make everybody around them miserable. They become critical and cantankerous and difficult, and the darkness of the world makes an assault upon the soul of the believer, and it intrudes into his life. The joy of the Lord is gone and he has to seek for satisfaction in the things of the world. And before long, the neighbors say he's living just like the man in the world. To all with appearances, he is. My beloved, there is a line of demarcation and a bifurcation today among believers. Some believers are living this morning with a grieved Holy Spirit. Others are living with an ungrieved Holy Spirit. I come now to the fourth what. What must the believer do when he sins? What's the cure? May I say this very carefully this morning? A believer cannot continue in sin without serious consequences. He not only loses his fellowship, but something else is going to happen. He's going to find that God will move in and deal with him. But a believer can do something about his sin. When a believer sins, what can he do? May I say scripture is crystal clear at this point. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, obviously, he's speaking here to believers. He's not speaking to unbelievers. And may I pause at this juncture, because if you come in here today, friend, you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, may I be very careful and say to you, God's not asking you to do this. He's not saying if you confess your sins. He's saying to you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shall be saved. He has you shut up to a cross, and you have to make a decision relative to Christ, and if you receive him, you become a child of God. But until then, this is not for you at all. Now, it is for a Christian. The believer is to do just one thing, confess. God does two things. He forgives, and he cleanses. Oh, I've come to another what? What is genuine confession of sin? Well, there's more in Scripture about this than anything else. In the Old Testament, there are two classic examples. And I want just now to turn to one of them. It's back in the book of Joshua. It's in the seventh chapter of the book of Joshua. The children of Israel had taken the city of Jericho. No, I'm wrong. They did not take it. God took it. They thought they did. And flushed with victory, Joshua thought he could send a little army up to Ai and take it. And he sent a little army up there, but they were not able to take the little town of Ai. And believe me, it was humiliation. So much so that Joshua went in before God and listened to this. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would to God we'd been content and dwelt on the other side Jordan. Doesn't he sound pious? O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turneth their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it and shall environ us around and cut off our name from the earth, and what wilt thou do under thy great name? Now, oh, Joshua was pious. He prayed about everything but the right thing. He said, what will the Canaanites think? What will happen to us? But he didn't deal with sin. And the Lord said unto Joshua, get thee up. Quit your whining and sniveling. Get up off your feet, Joshua. This is no time to pray. Well, you mean to tell me that the saints shouldn't pray? No, there are times when you shouldn't pray. There are times when you should straighten things out that are wrong. Get thee up. Wherefore liest thou upon thy face? Israel hath sinned. That's the difficulty. The problem's not with Ai. The problem's not with the Canaanite. The problem's not with God. The problem's there in your camp. You've sinned. And they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. They've even taken of their cursed thing, also stolen and dissembled also. They put it even among their own stuff. Now, they had to get that sin ferreted out and deal with it. They finally found the guilty party, and Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment, 200 shekels of silver, a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, and I coveted them, and I took them. Now, there's going to be some extreme surgery. And Joshua said, Why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones, burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. You say, That's harsh. He hasn't changed. You say, You mean today he does that same thing? Will you listen to him in Romans 8, 13, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. Physically? No. Spiritually? No. What do you mean? You're going to die to fellowship with God. Your life will be as dead as a dodo bird. That's what he means. That thing is chilling, my beloved. That thing has to be dealt with. Listen to him. Colossians 3, 5. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. May I urge you this afternoon, at least some of you, to commit a murder. Would you this afternoon take that member of your body that's causing you to offend and crucify it? can't crucify your body, but you can deal. Got that tongue? It's getting you in trouble? Talks too much? Take it before the Lord. Tell him what it is if we confess our sins. You've got to confess it. And to confess means to say the same thing God says about it. Achan had to come out in the open and I saw it, I credited it, I took it. That's confession of sin. You've got to deal with it, friends. This business today is, Lord, forgive me my sins. Then up off our knees, we go again to do some more. So we can come back and confess again. That's no good. That's not confession of sin. has to be dealt with. There's another man, a man that I love him. Oh, I'm looking forward to meet him. That's David. But David's a heartbreak. He was a heartbreak to God. Oh, that day that he came from the shepherd's field. That day that he came in and Samuel poured on that little red-headed boy the anointing oil, how bright and innocent he was there that day. David didn't stay that way. It was a rough age. And David lived in the caves of the earth. David was a rough man. He was so rough, God says, you can't even build me a temple, although it's the desire of your heart. And David was a peeping tongue. He committed a sin, adultery and murder. But you know what David did, like a lot of good fundamentalists today? Oh, on Sunday, he shined his halo and he looked so pious in church. In fact, of the matter is, when he walked in and sat down on the throne after he'd committed these sins, he looked around and he says, I wonder if anybody here knows. Don't think so, and if they do, they better keep their mouth shut. I'm king. I'll shut them up. He sat there. But he wasn't comfortable. Listen, my friend. Listen to this man. He's out of, this is his heart cry. Listen to him. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man under whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity and in whose spirit there's no guile. Listen to him now. Was David miserable after he committed the sin? Did he still have joy? When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moistures turned into the drought of summer. Now, the king of Babylon and the Pharaoh in Egypt can get by with that sin. But David is God's man. He can't get by with it. And there's no fellowship and no joy. God's man. He's got to deal with that sin. So God sent Nathan in there, bravest man in the Bible. Daniel knew the mouths of the lions were closed when he went in there. He wasn't afraid. But David didn't know that Nathan knew. And Nathan opened his mouth. He came in and he didn't talk to his back either. He came in, he pointed his finger at David after he told him the little story. This red-headed king says, Oh, it's easy to see fault in others, isn't it? Where's that man in my kingdom that did that? Nathan, thou art the man. David could have done nothing more than lift the scepter that was in his hand and Nathan would have been taken out. But Nathan was not executed. You know why? Because God's man sitting on that throne says, Thank God, it's out. I've got to deal with it. And David put it all out before the Lord and confessed it. Read Psalm 51. And now he says, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. Hallelujah. I'm back in fellowship with God. Oh, my Christian friend, why don't you come home? Why don't you come home? Never be happy till you come home. Now, I must come to the New Testament, and I want to be very brief, only one illustration. There's several classic illustrations here, though. There's Peter, there's Paul, both of them, prodigal son. But may I take a church, a Corinthian church? Corinthian church was in a city like Los Angeles, given over to immorality and all kinds of funny religions, and these believers came out of all sorts of walks of life that had been saved. And believe me, the church got in a mess. When Paul wrote the first letter to the Corinthians, there were divisions. Some were saying, I'm for Paul. Some said, I'm for Paul. There were lawsuits. There was immorality. There was sins regarding the Lord's table, there was sins regarding giving, there was sins regarding marriage. And do you think God shut his eyes to all of that? Mm Mm-mm. God chastened them. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. God says, I have already begun to chasten you because of the sin. But now God says, if you want to take the whip off of your back, then you will have to deal with it yourself. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. My Christian friend, to confess your sin means that you judge it yourself. Homologeia is the word for confess. And it means to come over on God's side and look at yourself and say what God says of yourself, that you're a dirty, low-down sinner, and that you offer him no excuse whatsoever, but you say, there it is, as black as it is, and I claim the blood of Christ. I want fellowship with you. My friend, a child of God, when they sin, will do like David did. There will be an agony of soul, and there will be tears of sorrow, and if they are not there, something's wrong. Now what did the Corinthians do? Friends, they, they did something about it. fact of the matter is, they did everything about it. They straightened it out. They straightened out the immorality. They straightened out the divisions. They straightened out everything. And then Paul wrote them a second letter, and he says to them, When this was called to your attention, you dealt with this thing that was in your life. And you saw it. When it was wrong, you made it right. And if there's not that agony of soul, it's not confession. If we confess our sins, repentance means to turn from the sin. You see, the prodigal always comes home always comes home because he's out of fellowship with his father and there's agony of so they're shedding tears oh that poor boy how miserable he was I'm going home may I say to you this morning No child of God can go on in sin. Shall we continue in sin? God forbid. I'm bold enough to say this morning that if you can sin and call yourself a Christian and it does not affect you in any way and you can go on living like that, you are not a child of God. You're not. You can't be. The child of God, oh, he can, yes, he'll sin, but when he sins, Go and confess it to the Father. If you grieve the Holy Spirit of God by some sin, and any sin will grieve him. John says, don't say you're having fellowship with him because you're lying, you're not. I didn't say that. I'm too polite to say that. John said it. He said, you're lying. John says, if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us. He'll forgive you. There's forgiveness with him. God wants to forgive, but He won't let you get by with it. He wants to forgive you, but you'll have to confess, and He'll cleanse you. You see, when that prodigal son got home, the father put a new robe on him, but the best robe. But wait a minute. He gave him a bath before because he smelt like the pig pen. He'll cleanse you, and when he cleanses you, you won't be running back to the pig pen. My friend today, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. I'm confident there's here today and those that have listened in, Christians who've wondered why they've lost contact with God. No reality. And they honestly have to go into the world to seek the things of the world for amusement. They have to, because the things of God mean nothing to them today. And the reason is, they won't face up of the sin in their lives. Now don't tell me this morning that you don't do this and you don't do that and you don't do the other thing. How about it really? Haven't you grieved the Holy Spirit of God? And if you'll deal with it, you'll bring reality into your life. May I move back of that I'm wondering this morning, briefly now in closing, because I've only been speaking today to believers, but you may have come in here today, you're not a child of God, never trusted him. May I say to you, I hope that somehow or another you've seen this morning when you become his child, he'll never let you go. You know, you can disobey, and I imagine many of you disobeyed your parents. My dad threatened to disown me one time, but he didn't. He punished, but he never threw me overboard. I found my heavenly father's lots better than my earthly father. He never even threatened to throw me overboard. He said he wouldn't, but he told me not to grieve the Holy Spirit because he said if I did, I was going to the woodshed unless I dealt with it. I've been to the woodshed. I'm sure you have. Oh, this morning, friend, to have God as your father. It's a wonderful family. To as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the sons of God. Even to those that don't do any more nor less than simply believe in his name, trusting Christ. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor J. Vernon McGee. If you enjoy the message, you can learn more about Pastor J. Vernon McGee's ministry by visiting www.ttb.org.